Father, I thank you for the opportunity to, to be here. I consider it a privilege, and I just pray that your spirit will guide and, and what I say. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I was raised... I was raised in a Jewish home, but... Oh, that's right, yeah. Let's start again. Of course, that one simple thing I'd forget. All right. Even though I was raised in a Jewish home, and Goldstein, <laughs> it was really a very secular home, and my folks were pretty much very secular and didn't believe in God, and we really never talked about it much. And, and I was very much raised postmodern, maybe not even knowing the term, and I was basically raised with the idea that there is no absolute truth, truth with a capital T, some kind of transcendent truth. You could have your truth, and that was your truth. You could have your truth, and that was your truth. And it didn't matter if you looked at them logically and they contradicted each other because there was no sort of Archimedean point. There was no point that you could stand above and ultimately judge. Truth was relative. It was cultural. It was subjective. No absolutes. And this was the way I was raised. This is the way I was educated. And this is what I strongly, strongly believed. Now, I don't know what it was from the time I was young. I always, I always had an interest in philosophy and I had an interest in, in just some of these questions. And I used to do a fair amount of reading of philosophy. And I'll never forget, I was about 20 years old 21 years old, and I was sitting in a pizza parlor at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And I was eating a pizza, drinking, let's just say, a non-Avenist beverage. <laughs> and I was reading a philosopher. His name is Spinoza. And now if, I could think, if I can't think of anybody who I think has got it all wrong now, I'd say it was Spinoza. But I read this guy, and he said something that changed my life. I'm reading him, and I'm sitting there, and he said, in order to live the most perfect life upon the earth, you need to find out the reason why you're here and live your life accordingly. Well, for some reason, well, I, now I know the reason, but back then, but anyway, those words went in my mind like a prefrontal lobe lobotomy. It just like, took like a shiv, and it went right in, and suddenly, all that subjectivism, all that relativism, all that stuff that I had been raised on in an instant just got wiped out because it was like, here, I was sitting there at the table. There was this pizza sitting on the table in front of me. Now, you could have had a thousand different people. They could have, each one had their own explanation for how the pizza got there. Some might have thought the god Marduk created the pizza. Some might have thought aliens came and dropped it in a flying saucer. Some could have believed that it evolved out of the ground. You could have had a thousand different people with a thousand different views, views that they would die for or kill for. They could have started religions over their belief on how the pizza got there and maybe every last one of those views were wrong. Maybe every last one of them was wrong, but it didn't change the fact that there was a pizza on the table and somewhere out there in the universe, somewhere out there, there had to be an explanation for the origin and purpose of the pizza. And that explanation of whatever it was, wherever it was, that was the truth about the pizza. And at that moment, I mean, I can't still, I never forget, I was 21 years old, I'll never forget. At that moment, it just suddenly hit me. I stepped back from the pizza, and I just looked around, and I thought, oh, here I am. And there's a reality. And in this, and that moment, it hit me, just as there had to be a truth about the pizza, somewhere out there, there had to be the truth the truth that explained the existence of the world, the existence of the universe, the, you know, that just explained everything. And whatever that was, that was the truth with a capital T. And I can't tell you what an earth shot, I mean, anybody would have looked and just would have seen some kid sitting there 
You know, they had what it was an earth-shattering moment for me. And you could have thought, oh, what's the big deal? You know, Mickey Mouse could have told you that. But had you not been raised the way I was raised, you couldn't understand what a life-changing moment that was for me. And I'll never forget, it was 19, oh, it was in the mid-1970s. I was, I said, I was 21 years old, and I'll never forget, it was at night, and I was walking through the streets of Gainesville, Florida. And I'm walking through the streets, and, I, and, and I'm realizing that truth had to exist. And I'll never forget, I just felt this burning. This was almost painful, because I thought, if it were possible... Because the fact that I realized that truth had to exist didn't automatically mean you couldn't deductively pull from that that I would ever know what that truth was, okay? I mean, one didn't automatically flow into the other. But at that moment, I suddenly realized that because I knew truth had to exist, I thought to myself, if it were humanly possible, if it were human, because it was almost, I, I can't describe it, it just it felt like, I just felt like I had, I thought, if it were humanly possible for me to know what this truth was, I thought to myself, I wanted to know it. I didn't care where it led me, what it cost me, what I had to suffer, what I had to give up. I thought, if I could know it, I wanted to know it no matter what. I mean, I can still remember, just, it was almost painful, this burning inside me. Well, all I know is about three years later, and I've gone into getting into all sorts of different things. You know, Gainesville, I went through my Marxist phase, and I went through this and that, and of all the different, of all the different ways I could have gone. About three years later, I ended up becoming a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, that's remarkable for a lot of reasons, because, first of all, growing up in my life, well, first of all, I only knew one Seventh-day Adventist my whole life. I only knew one Adventist, and we used to smoke pot together. Now, this story does have a happy ending. I probably won't have time, but you know, you've got to go about 30 years later to get a happy ending for that. But that story does have a happy ending. But plus two, in my life, there were two kinds of people I used to hate. I used to hate Christians, and I'm serious, I used to hate vegetarians. <laughs> I mean, I was so carnivorous. I was so into eating meat that... You know, I meet vegetarians, it was all I could do to keep myself from spitting in their veggies. You know, I was so hostile to it. But anyway, now my animosity, though, towards Christianity was a little deeper seated, though. Because even though I wasn't raised a religious Jew, I was raised, you know, a Jew. And I was raised on the Holocaust. For most Jews, secular Jews, that's their religion, the Holocaust. And I, but I was just so bitter over all the persecution done to the Jews in the name of Christ. You go through the head centuries, the crusaders rolled into Jerusalem, dragged all the Jews, put them in a synagogue, burned the, the synagogue to the ground where the Jews are inside alive, why these Christians sang hymns to Jesus. You know, and the Holocaust happened in all these Christian countries, like people that went to church, you know, and, and then with all, all this, and I was so hostile against Christianity. I mean, I hated Christianity. And I vented my anger out. There used to be this hellfire and brimstone preacher named Jed Smock. And Jed Smock used to come. He was traveling around. You can YouTube him. And I tell my kids, my kids heard me tell this story for years. And then one day I got on YouTube and showed him Jed Smock and the kids students harassing him. I said, that was me 30-some years ago. But anyway, this preacher used to come out on the campus and he'd stand out there with a Bible in his hand and he'd just start preaching hellfire and brimstone. Well, I would used to get in the center of the circle. I'd get on that guy's heels. I mean, I, I, I could have gotten arrested for what I did to this guy. And I mean, I mean he used to damn, if he damn my horse, Soul to hell once, he damned my soul to hell a thousand times. He was a charismatic. He used to put his hands on me and speak in tongues, try to cast demons out of me. And I'd start drooling and writhing on the ground. Like, you, know, it, you know, this just went on and on. It was a show. Eventually, my friends nicknamed me Heckle. Because I said, what are you doing out there harassing that guy? And this went on for a couple of years. Me, I mean, he just swore there was no hope for me. Well, anyway, this went on for a couple of years till I graduated University of Florida at Gainesville. And at that time in my life, I had one goal in my life. 
I had start, from the time I was probably 10 or 11 years old, I knew I was going to be a novelist or I was going to be nothing. I just got writers and editors and novelists in my family and I just knew I was going to be a novelist. And I had started a novel my senior year at college. And before long, this novel consumed me. All that I cared about was writing my novel. You know, I was an English major, creative writing major, and outside of some poetry courses, it was just a pain in the neck. But I wanted to get college out of the way because all I wanted to do was work on my novel. So my senior year, my novel consumed me. Well, I graduated the University of Florida, Gainesville, and then I went back home to Miami Beach, which was where I grew up. I grew up in Miami Beach. And I went back to Miami Beach I was back there working on my novel for a while and decided I'm going to go over to Europe and work on my novel in Europe. I had done a lot of travel in Europe when I was 17. I saved my money and bummed around Europe and North Africa when I was 19. I worked my way around the world, literally, just, you know, hustling and this and that. It's, you know, like, it's amazing how far, if you don't mind sleeping in graveyards and in train stations, how cheap you could travel. You know, now if I'm at a hotel room and I don't have a remote for the TV, I freak out. But... At, you know, 19 and 17, you can do what you want. Well, anyway, I decided, because I had done a lot of, I'm going to, my part of my novel is going to take place in Europe, so I'm going to go over to Europe to work on my novel in Europe. So I got a little bit of money left over from school. I go over to Europe, and I'm, I'm, I'm hitchhiking around England. And at one point, actually, believe it's kind of a, I'm not going to get the whole thing, I actually wound up in a Catholic monastery on an island off the coast of Wales. And I was there for about two days, and the monks threw me off the island. Okay, I'm not going to get in all that either. Anyway, I'm hitchhiking around England, and I need to get settled somewhere because all I want to do is work on my novel. Well, finally, I decide I'm going to go to Sweden because on an earlier trip, I had lived in Sweden. I had friends there. I, was, I had become fairly fluent in the language, and I was going to go to Sweden. So I hitchhike to the British coast. Then I take a boat from England to Holland. Then when I get to Holland, I'm just going to hitchhike up to Sweden. Well, the whole time I'm hitching in England, it's raining on me. And you get to Holland. I mean, it rains more in Holland than it rains in England. And I'm getting off the gangplank, and I'm soaked. Walking down, and it's cold, and I'm walking down the gangplank, and there's a guy ahead of me with a backpack. And on the back of his backpack, he's got a sign that says, Greece. And I said to the guy, I said, hey, you know, I'm starting to think Greece. I'm thinking sun, you know. I'm thinking I want to go to Sweden, you know. I mean, it snows in Sweden. So I, I go up to the guy and say, hey, man, are you hitching to Greece? And he says, yeah. And I said, oh, what a coincidence. So am I. Let's hitchhike that Greece together. So it's just like that, I changed my mind. So instead of being on one side of the road, we're on the other side of the road, and we're hitchhiking to Greece. Well, two guys in the rain with backpacks, doesn't make for good hitchhiking. So I said, we're just going to split up. And I said, for whatever, we'll just split up. And I just assumed being on my own anyway. So I ended up, it takes me four long, hard, hot days. And uh, I end up hitchhiking. I think I walked through, this was still when it was under the communists. I think I walked through Yugoslavia in a thousand kilometers. Anyway, after four long, hard, hot days, I wind up in Athens. Now, I had a friend who, at college who had lived in Athens, and he said, if you come to Athens, come visit me, maybe I'll get you a job. So when I, after four days on the road, I'm just burned out, exhausted. I get to Athens, and I get to this guy's house, and I knock on the door, and this little old lady comes out. And I ask for my friend, I say, Faunus, is Faunus here? And she says, Faunus no here, Faunus in Miami. <laughs> you know, and I let out a wail, and I guess she felt sorry for me. She gave me a meal, and an hour later, I'm back out in the streets of Athens. I have no idea where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do. I, I mean, I was just, you know, I was slightly depressed, okay? I mean, my biggest problem was, when was I going to sleep that night? So finally, I just found some bushes along a wall, and I said, I'm going to go to sleep. So I take my sleeping bag, I lay my sleeping bag out in the bushes along the wall, and I go to sleep. And that night I have a dream. Now you've got to understand something about me. At this time of my life, I was just a hardcore philosophical materialist. If everything in the universe 
could be explained through, you know, atoms. It's atoms in the void. Everything had a, you know, a, a physical explanation for it. You know, everything, you know, you know, your dreams depended on what you ate for dinner to what your genes to whether your mother breastfed you long enough when you were a baby. In other words, I had no belief in any supernatural or any, I mean, I believed all, it was just typical, you know, I had what I would call an a priori commitment to materialism, which is, you know, just everything had a naturalistic explanation. So I was not anybody to take dreams or anything as anything other than, you know, what I ate for breakfast and jeans and so on. Well, anyway, that night I have a dream and I dreamt that I was sleeping in the bushes and then, then I dreamt that I woke up and then I, and I dreamt that I went to Israel to go to a kibbutz on Israel and work on my novel on a kibbutz in Israel. You know what a kibbutz is? You know, they're like, they're like little self, think of like self-supporting places, though, trust me. They're, well, they got religious kibbutzim, but they're just self-supporting places and they take in volunteers. And I went to a kibbutz to work on my novel. That was my dream. Well, I wake up. I wake up <coughs> and... Uh, I crawl out of my sleeping bag and I think about the dream and I think, hey, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> and I'll never forget, I don't know why I remember the detail, but right across the street was a travel agency. And for some reason I remembered that the sign that said the travel agency opened at nine o'clock. And I, anyway, I get over, I go to the travel agency and I book a ticket to Israel and I fly to Israel, and two, three days later, I'm on a kibbutz in Israel working on my novel just as I had dreamt. Because as I said, nothing mattered to me other than working on the novel. Well, I'm on this kibbutz and I love it. I work 30 hours a week, and all the rest of the time was mine. You know, and I could just, all I had to do was just, just work there, you know, because the, they, they wash your clothes, they, you know, you ate in a cafeteria. So I had plenty of time to work on my novel. So I'm on there. Somebody hit the, we could do this in the dark, I suppose. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, all, uh, and so I'm, I'm very happy. I'm on the kibbutz. I'm working on my novel. And then I'm going to give you two, two details. Two details, and you might wonder, why am I giving you these now? But they come in importance later. When I was on the kibbutz, I had a blonde Danish girlfriend. Her name was Tina. Just remember a blonde Danish girl named Tina. Plus, when I was on the kibbutz, I, even though I was working on my novel, I lived to read poetry. I mean, even to this day, I, if, if I really want to get inspired, I, I learned how to write, I say, people reading poetry. And I just, back then I was a fanatic about poetry. I read, read, read poetry. And there was one book of poems by this woman named Sylvia Plath that probably had more influence on me than anything that I had read. I mean, at one point, this woman, she goes, she gives her kids cook, she goes, gives her kids cookies and milks, goes, writes this poem, and then goes down to the kitchen, sticks her head in an oven, and gasses herself, kills herself. So it was heavy stuff. But anyway, this, this stuff had a radical impact on me. So th that detail and my girlfriend named Tina. Well, anyway, I'm back, and I'm on the kibbutz. Well, I'm there a little while, and who should show up but a group of like 12 fundamentalist Christians from America. They're there. They're evangelicals. They're dispensationalists. They're there to be a kind of a silent witness to the Jews because, you know, they think Armageddon, the Middle East, you know, 200 million Chinese are going to come invade Israel in the Valley Armageddon and the church is raptured and 144,000 Jewish virgins are going to preach, you know, that whole spiel. Now, it's silly to us and it is silly, but they're serious and they were there to be as kind of to witness to the Jews. Well, you know, in a, you know, in a very silent, you know, of course, they never admit it, but that's what, you know, that's what they were there for. You know, I was furious. You know, here I was, I was in the boonies of the first Jewish state since the Bar Kokhba rebellion in like AD 135, and now they got a bunch of Christians here. Well, I had a lot of practice harassing Christians, you know, from, from my time with that preacher. Well, I laid into them, and, and it got so bad. And they were, you know, they were very good workers and worked hard. And I didn't get along with the, the kibbutzniks, the Israelis that well. Anyway, I got along better, you know, with, I got along better with the Arabs on the kibbutz workers than I did with the, the Israelis. And eventually the Israelis were threatening to throw me off the kibbutz if I didn't leave the people alone. 
Well, you know, I, the monks already kicked me off the island, so now the, the Jews are going to throw me off the kibbutz. So I just backed off and left the people alone because it made quite a stink, you know, with the, the, the trouble that I was causing with them. So I just backed off and left them alone because I didn't care. I just wanted to work on my novel. Well, anyway, a number of months go by, and this guy shows up on the kibbutz. Now, if there was one thing in my mind that was worse than being a Christian, that was worse than these people believing in Jesus, if it was one thing that was the worst of the worst, it was the lowest you could possibly be, it would be to be a Jew who believed in Jesus. Okay? And this Jewish guy shows up who's part of the group who's a believer in Jesus. Well, you know, this was different. This was different ball of wax. And I laid into him and I gave him such a hard time. But, you know, this guy was different. I mean, first of all, he was very, very intelligent. And I, I, I couldn't put that together. I just, I couldn't, because seriously, I grew up believing that the Bible was nothing but the rantings and ravings of a bunch of veedy-ridden camel herders who got tired of lugging these big stone idols around the desert on their camels. So they made up some notion of some god they couldn't see, said he was one, named him Yahweh, and that was the religion of the Bible. It was late Bronze Age camel herder myths. Okay, I mean, because that's how I was taught. So I could not understand how, and I thought any educated, intelligent person understood this. And then here was this guy, very intelligent guy. And we would get in these discussions, and he would give me some very logical answers at times. And I'll never forget, one time I got done with a discussion with him, going back to my room. And I'll never forget, because it was the first time in my life, I can still remember the moment, it was the first time in my life, I go back to my room, and I look up, and I think... Hmm, you know, maybe there is some big mama or some big daddy up there. It was like, it was like the first time the thought entered my mind. Well, anyway, months go by, and just the usual, I'm working on my novel, and um, they had one night on the, puts, the kibbutz a Purim party. Purim, Esther, Feast of the Lots. And in traditional Judaism, Purim is a pretty wild party. I mean, it's, you know, it's a pretty wild bash. You know, people dress up in masks and, you know, it's pretty much anything goes. Well, it was a, they have the party, the wild party, and none of the Christians went to the party. Well, the next morning I see this guy, this very logical, rational, intelligent guy. And I go up to him and I said, Ephraim, how come you Christians didn't go to the Purim party? And I'll never forget this guy. As I said, logical, rational, intelligent. He looks me right in the face and he says, we prayed to the Lord all week and he told us not to go. And that just totally freaked me out. Because as I said, to be honest with myself, I couldn't write this guy as some holy rolling screwball. Okay, I just couldn't do that. He was too, you know, you can do that with some, let's face it, with some believe, you know, let's face it, okay? Let's face it, I mean, okay? But I couldn't, in honesty with myself, do that with this guy. Now, I didn't, you know, I mean, I, was the guy lying to me? I didn't think he was lying to me. And, and, and I just did, I was suffering, I guess what they call cognitive dissonance. Because I didn't have an answer for this. I didn't, have, and I remember going back to my room and almost wanting to, beat my head against the wall in frustration. Because remember, this was all post-pizza parlor. Okay? Because I was seeker for truth no matter what. Well, anyway, like everything, I got over it. Yes, yeah, I got over it. I get over things real fast. And, and anyway, I'd been on the kibbutz about a year. All that mattered was writing my novel. Then I finally decided I'm going to go to Europe and work on my novel in Europe, which I originally intended to do. And so I left the kibbutz, and then I just hitchhiked up through Europe, and I ended up going to, to Denmark. And in the middle of, I went to Copenhagen. And in the middle of Copenhagen, there had been this vast military barracks. 
And the military had abandoned the barracks like years earlier, and there was this big hippie community, these squatters. They moved into this place. It was called Christenia. And it was like just an alternate community, right smack there in the middle of, you know, very liberal Copenhagen. I mean, Denmark, Scandinavia. Well, this was, you know, big hippie community in there. I think half the drug addicts and half the refugees, you know, and, and fugitives and so on. I don't think a day was going by and somebody wasn't dying from a heroin overdose. I mean, I had remembered the place differently when I was there once before. And I get there and it was just really a hellhole. It was just a slum. Just a slum right in the middle and, you know, I mean, just a lot of drugs and, as I said, people were dying of heroin overdoses and on and on and on. So I get to this place and it's a lot. I was going to do part of my novel there and I just didn't remember it as being so skanky as it was when I got there. Well, anyway, give you an idea. I'm, I'm there two days and I'm walking through this club. I'm just trying to keep track of the time here. I want to make sure I don't, because I said this story can get long. And I got to stay within the, uh, within the time frame. I'm walking through this courtyard, and I hear this woman screaming. And I look over, and there's some guy beating on some woman. She's on the ground, and he's stomping her, and he's kicking her. And I'm, you know, I'm walking, thinking, I don't want to get involved in this. You know, I got enough of my own problems. But, you know, I'm walking by, and maybe some of you are old enough to remember the Kitty Genevieve story, you know. But anyway, I just... Suddenly I think, all right, I got to do something. I mean, I, I got some of a conscience, you know, and this guy's stomping on this girl. So I walk over, and as soon as I walk over, he stops beating on her, and she gets up and she runs away. So I'm thinking, oh, I did my good deed for the day, okay? So I start walking away. Well, the next thing I know, he's some strung out little junkie, but I'm walking away, and the next thing I know, this guy turns around and just sucker punches me and just punches me right in the mouth, slams me right in the mouth. He hits me. Well, you know, I'm not, you know, I mean, it's taken me 54 years and I barely got a gut, you know, I get a gut. I don't weigh a whole lot, though I weigh a little more. Now, I'm not very big, I'm not very imposing, obviously, here. But when I was in college, I used to box. I used to box, just on a ring, not, not in a ring, but on a bag. I mean, I punched this bag for hours on end, so it was reflexes. So this little junkie punches me. Well, I don't even think twice. I just turn around, boom, 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 laid him out. Just, I don't even think, two, two shots. He was down, out, out. Well, what happened was when he hit me in the mouth, he hit me and my head went flat and my glasses went off. And I mean, I, even, I, I try to get LASIK. They won't even do LASIK on me. My eyes are so bad. I mean, I got to squint to see five fingers in front of my face. So this guy hits me, and I can't find my glasses, so I grab him by the head, and I'm holding him by the head and the hair, and I'm saying, find my glasses, find my glasses. <laughs> so I get my glasses on, and I say, look, you know, I'll go see a marriage counselor or something, you know, you get some, you know, whatever. Then I take him and I throw him on the ground. Well, that was a mistake because I got a bad knee and a bad back. And as I said, I woke up today, my back is killing me, so it's, this goes back. So anyway, I throw him on the ground, so instantly my knee and my back give out. Okay, so outside the fact that I end up later just getting a big old fat purple lip from where he punched me, which was all I got. I mean, if he, you know, as I said, he was a strung out little junkie. If he would have been anybody you know to throw a punch, sucker punched in the side of your mouth, he could have broken my jaw. It would have been a different, but anyway, anyway, the bottom line is he gets, I throw him on there and he gets up and says, I'm going to kill you, man, and he pulls out a knife. I wait a boxing or no boxing, I'm not going to fight somebody with a knife, you know, so I run. And I'm running, and it does my knee and my back. That's the last thing they need. And it's like out of Keystone Cops. I'm yelling, help, police, help. And I was scared. This guy's chasing me down the street with a knife. You know? And then out of the blue, the cops come. Well, anyway, and then they take us down to the station. And at the bottom line is an hour, the cop says, well, according to Danish law, the knife wasn't long enough to make an arrest. Okay, so the bottom line is I'm back out on the streets. My knee's killing me. My back's killing me. I got a fat, swollen lip. I'm scared to death of the strung out little junkie, you know, because she's going to finish the fight with that knife and sticking that knife in my back. So I'm not, the bottom line of all this is things aren't going particularly well for me, okay? <laughs> then on top of it, I have a friend. I had a friend who lived in another part of the city who I met a couple of years early under such bizarre circumstances. I mean, you're going to have a hard enough time believing everything I'm telling you today. I'm not even going to try to get into that, how bizarre that was, and I've still never been able to put that together. This guy lived in a very wealthy part of town, and, this guy, and I would visit him. This guy was deep into the occult, 
deep into spiritualism. I mean, it was creepy. That apartment was creepy. Everything about that place was creepy. And I'll never forget, I would go there, and this guy would get in these drunken stupors, and he'd sit in a chair, and he'd stomp, and he had all these occult books and candles, and he'd sit there, and he'd stomp, and he'd stomp, and he'd wail, and he'd shriek, and he'd let out these shrieks, and these shrieks, and he's stomping, and he's wailing, and it's just going, I mean, he'd sit there for days, he'd urinate in his pants, and he'd never get up, and I mean, it was so creepy. And I'm looking at this poor guy, and I don't know what to do for this guy. I mean, I'm desperate. So I, of all people, I think this guy needs anything. So I say to him something about him. Have you ever thought about Jesus? Okay, I say that to him. And I'll never forget that this was the freakiest part of it all. I'll never, as soon as I say the name Jesus, he's stomping. He stops. And then he looks up at me with one eye. Okay, I don't get the one eye thing. <laughs> to this day, that's one eye. And he says, 20 years ago, I asked for Jesus. Instead, I got the devil. Okay, now folks, I mean, back then, I didn't know the difference. Jesus, Buddha, Moses, the good tooth fairy. You know, it was all the same to me. It, I mean, I was totally secular, hardcore secular. I mean, it was all the same to me. But when he said that to me, I just got the devil out of there, so to speak. I just said, I'm out of here, man. That so freaked me out that when he said that to me, and I left, and I left Copenhagen. Now, I traveled enough. I had been road savvy enough to know you, you can go to the moon, but you don't get away from yourself, okay? You take it with you. But I was getting so depressed there. So I left that place, and I get to Paris, and I wanted to live in Paris. So I'm in Paris, and on top of my knee hurting, my back hurting, I mean, this, this depression from that guy, I felt this heaviness on me. I'm in Paris. I don't know anybody. I got some personal issues I'm struggling with. The bottom line is I'm running out of money. I mean, the bottom line is I'm going down, 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 down. And it was the only time in my life, I was 23, it was the only time in my life I said, okay, you're in a bad situation. So what are you going to do? You can do A, you can do B, or you can kill yourself. Okay? It was the only time in my life up till that point that suddenly that's where I was. And I remember looking, and there was the Eiffel Tower. And the thought entered my mind about jumping off the Eiffel Tower. I was an old skydiver. That's how I messed up my knee and my back, skydiving. And I thought, I'll go out in style. And, it's, but, and I really, there was an Eiffel Tower. And as soon as I had the thought about jumping off the Eiffel Tower, this other thought kind of came in the back of my mind and boop, knocked that thought out. And that thought was, hang on, because maybe this Jesus stuff is true. And then yet, as soon as I had that thought, I cursed myself. I said, look at you. And I mean, I remember this so clearly. Look at you. Your whole miserable, pathetic life. You always hated religious people. You looked at religious people as weak people. Oh, they couldn't handle the hard knocks of life. So they had their little invisible bunny rabbit that they said their prayers to at night. And they said their prayers and they felt better in their crutch. And they made them on and on and on. And I mean, I just would, I mean, I mean, I would, I would want to spit in their faces. I mean, I had so much disdain for this. It seemed so cheap, so stupid, so, you know, just, just, uh, anyway, you get the point. <laughs> anyway, but anyway, and I said, and now, for the first time in your miserable 23 years, you feel like you can't handle it, and now you're going to reach out to some god, some religion, or something, and I thought, uh-uh, no way. I was too honest a seeker for truth, to reach out and believe a lie, no matter how good the lie made me feel. I'm sorry. I was just, I was just, I said, no way. I wanted truth. I wasn't going to reach out, you know, and do something just because it made me feel better. I would have rather have jumped off that Eiffel Tower, been squashed dead like a grape, than consciously live a lie, no matter how good the lie made me feel. And I'll never forget, it was, I can still remember some of these moments so clearly. I can still remember now, it was one of those, now whether I shook a fist up in the sky or not, I don't, that I don't remember, but it was one of those, I said, okay God, if you're there, if you're there, 
You have to reveal yourself to me. You know, the Bible says, you know, you turn water into wine. I kind of like that one. You drop bread out of the sky, you know. All you can do, all this stuff. If you're there, if you exist, you have to reveal yourself to me. You have to give me a sign. You have to show me that you exist. Otherwise, I will never believe ever. And with that, I left Paris. And I went back to Israel. And I went back to my old kibbutz. And I go back to my old kibbutz and... Because I, I just wanted to get back and work on my novel. Because all that mattered was working on the novel. Well, I get back to my old kibbutz. Well, the Israelis were not going to let me back on that kibbutz. Okay, they got me out. They were not going to let me back. I thought, fine, I'll find another one. And because I wanted to work on my, my book. And I told the Christians what happened. And I told that Jewish believer what happened. I said, look... I said, you know, you say to believe, you know, and have faith. Well, you know, I can go over and believe in Bastet, the cat goddess of ancient Egypt. You know, I mean, have faith. If your God is there, he's got to show himself to me. And my friend said, if you asked, he will. I said, well, all right, fine. You know, okay, great, whatever. Well, anyway, I left the kibbutz. And uh, I decided to go. I'm going to go to the main kibbutz office in Tel Aviv and get assigned to another another kibbutz, because you just don't walk up to a kibbutz and knock on the door and say, hey, I'm here, you got to get a sign. So I'll go to Tel Aviv, and uh, I go into the kibbutz office, and there's a woman at the desk, and then there's a guy sitting next to her who's ahead of me to get a sign to a kibbutz, and I'm waiting over here. And I happen to look on the desk, <coughs> I happen to look on the, oh, that's awful, I happen to look on the desk, and I see a sheet of paper. And it, has, it says my name, Clifford Goldstein. And I thought, now that was bizarre. You know, and I interrupted the woman who was talking to the, the kid in front of me. And I said to the woman, how did you know I was coming? And she says, I don't know, who are you? I don't know who you are. And I point to the sheet of paper, Clifford Goldstein. Well, the kid that was sitting there, he says, jumps up and says, no, that's mine. My name is Clifford Goldstein. Okay, now Clifford Goldstein, all right, it's not, it's not the most, let's face it, it's not the most common name in the world. But then again, you know, I wasn't in, I wasn't in Mecca, okay? I was in Tel Aviv, okay? And then, and then I said, hey, Cliff, where are you from? And he says, I grew up Miami Beach. You know, and when I was a kid, you know, when I told my mother the story later, she said that we used to get pediatrician bills to our house for Clifford Goldstein for appointments that I didn't have. So we must have had the same pediatrician when we were kids. Well, anyway, he's there. He wants to get assigned to a kibbutz. And I said, Cliff, have I got the kibbutz for you? <laughs> I said, you go to my old kibbutz. And you tell him that your name is Clifford Goldstein and that you come from Miami Beach and you see what happens. So he goes to the kibbutz. You know, they take him in. You know, they gave me this whole spiel about how they don't have any more room, you know, or whatever. But they take him in. Well, anyway, about two weeks go by and I'm, I'm running around Israel like a chicken with his head cut off. I'm not getting it together. And I decide I'm going to go back to the States. I'm going to go home. So I go back to the kibbutz for a visit. And of all the different rooms they had put the volunteers in, Clifford Goldstein was in the same room that I had been in when I had been on the kibbutz. And I had left months earlier. And there were two beds in the room. And he was sleeping in the same bed that I had when I had been on the kibbutz. Okay? And I don't think they did it because I had been there because people had come and gone. Okay, so anyway, we're sitting there and I'm talking to him next to the bed. And above the bed, there was a bookshelf. And when I had all my books on the bookshelf, and when I had left Israel to hitchhike up to Denmark, I left all the books on the shelf. I'm not going to travel around, you know, like traveling around with a, you know, change of underwear and another, you know, change of a shirt. I travel very lightly. So I left all the books on the bookshelf. And I look and I see a number of my old books on the bookshelf. And I said, hey, Cliff, you like my books? And he looks at me and says, what are you talking about? He said, those are all my books. And I said, no way. I said, no way. And I'll never forget, I stood up and I reached for 
the volume of poetry by Sylvia Plath. Remember, I told you this was the book that had impacted me. I used to make people sit there and listen to me while I would read them. They probably didn't give a rip about it, you know, but I'd make them listen while I read Sylvia Plath poems to them. Same author, same title, same edition, same book, but it wasn't my book. It was his book. And then I looked at him and I said, Cliff, are you a writer? And he says, yes, I'm a writer, and I've come to Israel to write. Okay? Then, then we're still not done. Then we're talking, and somebody knocks at the door. And this girl walks in the room. She's from Denmark. This is his girlfriend. And he says, Cliff, you'll never guess what her name is. Her name was Tina. Okay? All right. Now, I'm telling you, this is exactly how it happened. Okay? Now, but again, I can tell people this story. Trust me, you had to be there. Trust me, you had to be me. Okay? And I just, I remain, everybody was kind of freaking out, but the Christians were very cool about it. And I'll never forget this one said to me, he said, Cliff, you're asking God for signs. He says, man, what more do you want? He said, the Lord is calling you by name. And when he said that to me, I'll never forget, I stepped outside. I stepped outside. And I'm thinking about this. And I'm thinking, and I'm just thinking, all right, I said, God, you got to show me a sign. And, you know, a coincidence? This just couldn't be a coincidence. So if it couldn't, be a coincidence than what was, and I'm telling you, it was the first time in my life I kind of looked up, I looked up in the sky with a little bit of reverence, with a little bit of fear, because at that moment I just knew, I knew there had to be something. Anyway, to make a long story short, these Christians whom I harassed and harangued the whole year, we were like half of, like 300 yards from the Jordan River. They get this all backwards. They take me down the Jordan River and they baptize me. And they give me a Bible and I fly back to the States. And I go back to Gainesville, Florida. Now, the only problem was I was really no more born again than a corpse. Okay? I mean, meeting my double was heavy. I knew, I knew there had to be something else out there. And an important lesson, too, you know, all my animosity towards Christianity, those Christians treated me so kind and so lovingly. You know, just the other day, I even called one of them on the phone. I stayed in touch and said, you know, to this day, and I always break down in tears when I talked to them. I said, no matter how obnoxious and mean I was, you people never stopped loving me. And that probably did more to break down prejudice to me against Jesus than anything, all the theological arguments in the world. So I mellowed out about Jesus. I mean, after all, I mean, I'd been baptized, okay? But, but, I, but, I, but I came back to the States. I got back working on my novel, and I had the Bible, and I start reading the Bible, but I, you know, I, if you're not into it, like, I couldn't get past the talking state, the snake, you know? It's like, you know, come on. So nothing really changed. All that mattered was working on my novel. Now I'm going to backtrack a little, and then I'm going to come back. When I left that guy in Denmark who was in the occult, I went back to Israel, as I said, and I laid down one afternoon to take a nap, and I lay down, I felt a strange little tingling in my toes. And it would roll up, this, it would roll up, and I'd feel this, suddenly I feel this loud pounding and this vibration in my head, and I have this sensation I'm going through a wind tunnel, and it was very loud. I just, I'd sit up and thought, man, that was wretched. I had no idea what that was. It never happened before. It was not comfortable. And then I came back to the States, and the same thing would happen. The tingling in my toes, and this pounding in my head, and this, you know, and I felt like I was being torn apart. And I said to myself, next time it happens, don't fight it. So I'm back in the States after all that happened, and I lay down one afternoon. The tingling in my toes, and the whole spiel, and then I feel this pounding in my head. I said, don't fight it, don't fight it. And the next thing I know, zoosh. I feel myself go right out of my body. And I remember going right through the beams, right through the ceiling. I remember seeing the beams of the roof. And the next thing I know, I'm hovering in the air 
in this gray crackly mist outside the apartment of a couple of friends of mine who were trying to get me into Guru Maharaji. Okay, now please understand, I am a hardcore Seventh-day Adventist today. I understand today perf oh, perfectly, mind, body, duality. I don't even begin to understand it perfectly. I don't have the vaguest idea how it works. The point is, I don't, I know there's no such thing as a separate immortal soul, okay? I, I'm not, I understand, let's get that straight. But at that time, I had no idea and nothing could have convinced me that that wasn't my soul leaving my body. And I thought, wow, wow, that's heavy. That's real. Maybe this is where the truth is that I've been looking for. The occult, spiritualism. So the next day, I decide I'm going to go over to the library. I'm going to get a book on the occult and spiritualism. I'm going to start studying this because, as I said, I had been baptized, I had the Bible, but nothing, I had no relationship with God. I mean, it was just, you know, and after meeting my double, I knew there was another realm. And after you have something like this, you know even more there's something else out there. So I'm walking over the library to get a book on the occult. And as I'm walking over, I happen to stop by a health food store. Because I need a job, okay? I was desperate enough, I'd even, you know, for a job, I'd even work with vegetarians if I had or whatever. <laughs> and this guy comes out of the health food store. If he was closed, I just knocked on the door and he came out and I mentioned something that I'm into, what I'm into, I said something, and he pulls me in the health food store. I said something about religion or that. He pulls me in the health food store and I start telling about these occult experiences and he starts warning me about Satan. Well, talking to me about Satan, you know, back then. It's like, I go back and I talk to my family about Satan now. I mean, they throw beer on me, you know. It's like, Satan, come on. Well, anyway, he says, read this book. So he hands me a book. And I was a reader, so I took the book. Well, I go over to the library to get a book on the occult, cult, to start practicing it. And I get the book, and I actually sit down. I wasn't in, in school, so I couldn't check the book out. And I sit down there, and I read the first chapter, and I practice the first technique. I never even tell people what it is. I practice the first technique of this occult stuff. Then I'm going to go put the book back because, you know, I couldn't check it out. But to make a long story short, I'm walking through the Bible, and literally... In one hand, for the first time in my life, I've got this book on the occult. First time in my life, I'm, you know, I'm ever going to you know, look at this seriously. In one hand, and literally, in my other hand, at that moment, I'm walking through, I got the book that the guy handed me in the health food store. Cult book in one hand, what do you think the other book was? The Great Controversy. It was the only book. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you folks, I didn't have a clue. I was clueless as to what was going on, okay? I mean, let's talk about walking on a razor's edge. Talking about, anyway. Anyway, about one or two nights later. All right, good. Time will work. About one or two nights later. It's 1979, the fall of 1979. I'm walking back to my room. The sun is setting. I'm walking back in my room to work on my novel. But two and a half years in my novel, nothing else mattered to me. I was 23 years old. I mean, it was the only thing that mattered to me in my life was that book. Somebody would have threatened to have torn a page. I would have fought it with my life. I had nothing else because I didn't care about anything else. And did you ask me at that time, did I believe in God? Did I believe in Jesus? Well, I knew after all this that there was another realm out there. I knew that there was a, you know, my, that hardcore materialism I was cured of. And I'm walking back to my room, but that was it. That was where I was at. I knew there was, a, you know, something else. I come back to my room, I sit down, and I date myself on this. It's a manual typewriter. Okay, because I've told the story before, people assumed it was a computer and they didn't know what the big deal was. But I sit down in front of this manual typewriter. I put my finger on the keys to start working on my novel. And at that moment, as real as anything that ever happened to me, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ came to me in the room. I mean, in that instant, I knew exactly who he was 
Never questioned. I knew exactly what he wanted. And he said, his words to me were, Cliff, you have been playing with me long enough. And then here's the most important word of the whole thing. If, if, because the whole time this is happening to me, I'm aware it's my free choice. You know, this whole idea of free will and free choice, it's an exceedingly complicated philosophical debate, but all I know is what I experienced that night. And he said, if you want me tonight, burn the novel. It was simple as that. And at that instant, he showed me that that novel, that was my God. Pure and simple, that was my God. Absolutely no. And at that instant, he showed me, you shall have no other gods before me. If, because I realized I didn't have to do it. If you want me tonight, burn the novel. And I said, God, please, let me just finish this. And then I'll give my life to you. If, if you want me tonight, burn the novel. I said, God, please, I'll, I'll write it all to your glory. <laughs> you know? If you want me tonight, burn the novel. I said, God, please let me just put this away and we'll deal with it another time. If you want me, burn the book. And I remember just jumping up and bursting into tears and running out of the room. I mean, burn the novel, I could have slit my throat easier than burn the novel. I had nothing. I've put everything into that book. You know, my friends were getting degrees in this and degrees in that, and I put, I mean, the book controlled my life. It was, I was a slave to it, and it was my God, so, and that was a problem, but that was all I had, anything but the book, and to make it even worse, it was going better than it had ever been in, in all the time that I was, which later turned out to be, was important that that, that be. I'm not going to have time to get into that now. Anyway, I'm walking through the streets, and there's no way, and I'm all this stuff, and I'm walking through the streets of Gainesville. These are the same streets of Gainesville at night that I walked through when I walked out of the pizza parlor a couple of years earlier saying I wanted to know truth no matter the cost. Remember? I said no matter the cost. And now, like two and a half, three years later, I'm confronted with the cost. I was like, there's no way. All right. There was, I could not burn that book. Well, anyway, I'm going through all this stuff, and I never forget to hear these little, funny little details that always stay in my mind. I finally, we, I stopped underneath a street lamp. It was at night, and I can still remember, you know how the bugs fly around the lamp and they cast little shadows on the ground? Why I remember that detail, I don't know. And I'm sitting there, I'm going through all this stuff, and then finally I say, okay, God. I say, I want you and I want truth more than I want this book. But if you want to burn, you're going to have to burn it for me because I can't burn it. And the instant I made that choice, now we're told everything depends on the right action of the will. The instant I made that choice, you know, God might not force, but I did sort of feel this kind of this grip around my neck, okay? <laughs> And yet the moment, it was amazing, the moment I said, okay, God, I want you more than I want the book. They're going to have to moment, burn it for me. The moment I made that choice instantly, that kind of vice around my neck just vanished. And at that moment, I knew exactly what was going to happen. I had no idea I was a sinner. If you told me I was a sinner, I would have looked at you like you were out of your mind. I had no idea about the atonement, the cross. I had no idea, nothing. I told you the only thing I knew about Seventh-day Adventists. I knew, had no idea about anything. I mean, totally experiential, nothing logical or whatever. It was just all having no idea. I knew what was going to happen. I went home, this little room, this little two-burner hut plate that my mother had given me, I guess in vague, vain hope that I'd actually cook something. She had no idea. And I picked up my manuscript. I was 23 years old. Okay, when you're 23, two and a half years, it was two and a half years of my life. And at 23, you know, two and a now, two and a half years. But back then, I had nothing else. I took that manuscript, two and a half years of my life, and I put it on the hot plate, and I turned the switch and burned the novel. And that was the night I became a born-again believer in Jesus. And I can honestly say I burned that novel in 1979 and never, never for a moment have I ever been sorry that I burned it. And I want to tie a few loose ends together. 
You ever read these stories about these people? Well, they're, they're pandemic now, these near-death experiences. They die and they have the sensation of going through a tunnel and then they're out of the body and they're floating around in this mist and they meet their dead relatives and all that. That was the exact experience that I had, but I wasn't anywhere near dead. I'm convinced that it was through the influence of that guy in Denmark that Satan got, you know, the devil's religious. The devil's really, he thought that I was getting interested in spiritual things. So I'm convinced the whole thing were supernatural hallucinations. I mean, these near-death experiences, what else could they be? They say they meet their dead relatives. So what else could they be? Satan got an inroad. See, the devil saw I was getting spiritual. I was looking for something. And it was his last-ditch effort. But, you know, he overplayed his hand on me because raised the secular way I was, the belief in the devil. But, you see, after that, folks, see, I know. I know. I mean, there's not, a, you know, the subtlety, the whole spiel. I mean, I know it in ways that I just, well, I, one other time after I have about 30 years in the church, I got involved in an exorcism, which was a horrible experience, and then you really see it. But anyway, but the point is, when I burned that novel, those occult experiences never came back. Okay, the devil was trying to, you know, and I, I, you know, I have no way of knowing, but I'm convinced that I not burned that novel that night. That would have been it. What I do in Adventism, I'd probably be doing for the occult or the New Age movement. Okay. Anyway, I, anyway so those occult appearances stopped. That preacher I used to harass, Jed Smock, he came back. He came back, and I walked right out there, and he probably figures, here we go again. Only this time I witnessed with him the people in the crowd, many of them who remembered me as heckle. And, and I guess I want to wrap this up with this one final thing. You know, when I burned that novel that night, when I burned that novel that night, oh, man, I got, I got three more of these today and two more tomorrow. I'm a writer and an editor. Public speaking is like pulling teeth out of me. Okay, where was I? Oh, yeah, the most important point. <laughs> you know, when I burned that novel that night, I realized I might not ever write again. And I'm telling you, writing was all that mattered to me. It was the only thing I had the slightest talent for, only thing I had the slightest interest in. I mean, oh, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm around the house, I'm useless. My wife wants me to hammer something in with a nail. I mean, I, I, I get the shakes. I almost need a Valium. I, I hate tools. I, hate, I just hate everything. I just want to read and write. And, and I burned the novel. I realized I, I might not ever write again. And I, I said, well, that's what it took. I died. I met the, I came into the health, through that health food store, the Adventists. I came in through them. And for about two years, I didn't do any writing at all. And then one day, the door opened for me to write an article. And I wrote it. And it was for the Journal of Health and Healing if you know what that is. But you'll never guess what the topic was. Vegetarianism. <laughs> and I started writing, and I hadn't stopped writing since then. Okay? And I think that's sort of the moral, the moral of the story. That's the moral of the story. Well, there's a lot more we can go into, but I want to close with prayer. And, and again, you know... There was nothing evil in and of itself with writing the book. I mean, I've written 20 books since then. But it was my relationship to it. And I think the thing we need to be careful of, the lesson that I take from this is, you know, you could be, you could be going to church, you could be doing all the right things, but you can have something that in and of itself, in and of itself isn't, bad. I mean, in the end, what harm there would be where it would be a stone statue, you know, a statue of a fish? What in and of harm? It was when you bowed down and you worshipped it. And I think, you know, we need to be careful. You know, we laugh, idolatry, well, you know, that was just those superstitious pagans. But idolatry could come in a lot more subtle forms than we realize. And maybe Maybe there's something here you're clinging on to. You're clinging on to that means more to you than the Lord. I shudder to think 
what would have happened had I not burned the novel that night. I'm convinced the revelation of God was so strong to me that night. Had I not burned the novel that night, I have no way of knowing this, and I wouldn't want to limit the power of God, but I think that would have been it. I would have been a lost soul. I don't think there would have been any turning back, and I just, whew, whew, it's scary to even think about it. But the bottom line is, in the end, maybe there's something. Maybe there's something we're clinging to a little too hard, and that's what we need to pray about. Let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you again for the opportunity to share how you led in my life. and You took one sinner, one seeker, and you answered a very sincere prayer for truth. And Lord, that's why I believe I am, you brought me into this church, into this truth. And, and Lord, I know very few of the people here, and I certainly don't know any of their hearts. You know them, Lord. You know their hearts. And you know, a lot of young people and the, the enemy of souls is at work. And it's very easy to, to be deceived. And we're warned through the word to beware because our enemy goes around like a lion. And sometimes he's much more subtle, the serpent. And I pray that you'll bring conviction to anybody here. If they're clinging to something, if they're holding on to something, which... Maybe in and of itself it isn't that bad, but it has become an idol. I pray that your spirit will bring conviction. It might not be with all the bells and whistles and everything that I went through, which I needed only because I was so stone cold hard to everything. But the fact that they're here, Lord, shows that your spirit is moving on them and that you're touching them. And I pray that you will just bring conviction. And if there's something that needs to go that... You'll bring the conviction to them and that whoever it is and whatever it is, they will make the choice to surrender that to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.